I'm calling this series Radical, Ephesians for Misfits. And it's important for the life of this church because we are in this refresh phase. About a year ago, we decided to remain a church. We decided to remain open. Like, we're going to be a church. Made a, made a resolved decision to be a church. And so we embarked upon this refresh season. Phase one of which was to regroup 30 adults. And we accomplished that back in June. And we are in another phase of refresh that we're calling refocus. And refocus is all about asking the question, what does it mean to be a community of misfits on a mission? Finding our identity in Jesus. We're asking the question, what does it mean to be this? And so that's why we're using this spelling of the word radical. It's a term from botany that means the part of the plant that develops into the primary root. So what is our primary root? What are we grounded in? And it's also appropriate that we're going through the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians is different from a lot of Paul's other letters. A lot of Paul's other letters are written to specific congregations and he's dealing with a lot of the minutia, a lot of the challenges that are going on in that particular Congregation, But Ephesians is actually written to a bunch of churches all throughout the Roman province of Asia. And so he's much more general. I call it the 10,000 foot view. He kind of zooms out all that he's been teaching about Jesus, about, God, about the gospel, and about what does it mean to be the church. So we've recently reached a milestone in Ephesians. We have reached the second half of Ephesians. Ephesians is divided into two pretty symmetrical parts. And in part one, Paul elaborates on the gospel. The kingdom of God arriving in and through Jesus and the Spirit, forming one new human family, made up of people from all ethnic groups. And he elaborates on how this new way of being the human community in Christ is empowered by the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's characterized by the love of Christ, and it puts on display the multifaceted wisdom of God to the rulers and to the authorities, both in the seen realm and the unseen realm. Now we're in the second half. Now we're in the latter portion of Ephesians. Since last week, or since, since Emily spoke two weeks ago, we've been in chapter four, and we're moving into chapter five. And in the latter half of, of Ephesians, Paul is going to get really messy. He's going to get really like up in our business. This is the part of Ephesians that makes us squirm a little bit. It makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And part of that is because Paul's going to have some very specific directives for us. And we don't like directives. We're Americans, right? Like Americans don't like to be told what to do. We are free and we like our liberty. And... We're consumers, right? We don't like what Paul's saying. We just turn the page. We're going to go to another part of Ephesians. I don't like that. We don't like what TC's saying when he's quoting Paul on Sunday. Just go to another church. We don't have to, we don't have to go to Roots. So we're modern Westerners, and we don't appreciate being made to feel uncomfortable. But that's what the second half of Ephesians is going to do. It's going to make us a little uncomfortable. And on Thursday, I heard someone say, what I think is the reason why this makes us a little uncomfortable. 
On Thursday, Oshida, Kirsten, and, and I, Kirsten was there too, we all attended uh, this conference called the Do Justice Conference, where uh, Brian Stevenson was speaking. And before he spoke, they wanted to lay a biblical foundation, so they invited a um, professor from Northwestern University named uh, Ken Young, Dr. Ken Young, and he, he spoke from Ephesians, to my delight. But he said this, he said, Ephesians chapter 2 declares that people from every ethnic group have been brought together in one body because of Jesus. He said, but you know, as well as I do, that being brought together in one body doesn't make you reconcile, does it? No. He said, we all know that elections bring together Republicans and Democrats into one body, like the House of Representatives, for example, but that don't make them reconcile, does it? <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> we all know that's true. So the latter half of Ephesians is where Paul has laid a theological foundation for how Jew and Gentile, all ethnic groups, have been brought together in one body, but now we have to learn how to live together. We have to learn how to be the church together. And that's where it gets real messy. That's where it gets real specific. But that is the important nitty-gritty everyday reality that we have to grapple with, isn't it? So I think it's important. And that's why we're going to take a closer look at that today in chapter 5. But before we dive into our text, would you join me in a word of prayer for the illumination of the Spirit? Holy Spirit, we need you to understand and to apply the text. We come to this text with all of our baggage. We come to this text with all of our stories, with all of our individuality, with all of our social locations, and they're all different. We need you to illuminate the scriptures to our minds and to our hearts in a way that makes them particularly, specifically relevant for us, for this community, in this place, at this time, and for each one of us individually. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and minds to understand and to apply this lesson well. Teach us, Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. So I'm going to be using the New Living Translation, uh, which is a paraphrase this morning. But if you have a different translation, you're welcome to use your translation. And if you don't understand why there are different translations and you think that that's weird, come talk to me. I love to talk about different translations and why some are better than others. Um, it's a happy conversation I like to have. So let's have that conversation. But I'm going to be using the NLT. And starting in chapter 5, verse 1, let's read together. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on those who disobey. 
him. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But the, their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants, to do, wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. After reading a passage of scripture like that, it's easy to see why we're tempted to avoid them. It makes us feel very uncomfortable. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. It's way too personal. Way too messy. Why does he have to call out specific sins? that we don't want to talk about. If you feel that way, you're not alone. Preachers feel that way too. Some preachers love texts like this. A little too much. Some preachers love texts like this because it can be used to manipulate with guilt or condemnation. But a lot of preachers hate texts like this because they make people feel uncomfortable. And the Bible's supposed to be all about rainbows and gumdrops and kumbaya and cuddles, right? So we don't read these parts of the Bible. But neither of those approaches, avoiding it or, or, or you know, loving it for the wrong reasons, neither of those is healthy or faithful. This passage isn't meant to be used as a club to beat people over the head, and neither is it meant to be cut out of the Bible because it makes us uncomfortable. Even when we somehow hear a passage like this, we're often tempted to make two equally destructive mistakes. On the one hand, we're tempted to turn it into a list of rules to follow. There's rule number one, rule number two. There's very clear directives in this text that we can turn into a list of rules. But we're also sometimes tempted to feel overwhelmed by all the directives. To throw our hands up and say, well, I'm just doomed to fail. Both of those are potentially destructive mistakes. There is profound wisdom in this passage, and we shouldn't assume that it's impossible to live faithfully according to it. But it's also not a list of do's and don'ts. So in 2002, I was a youth pastor for a Pentecostal church in New Orleans, and I was in Bible college. And I received the official youth group curriculum for Sunday schools from the denomination. It was in plastic packaging, and I ripped it open. I was excited because I thought, well, they did all the work for me. I don't have to plan any lessons for the rest of the semester. So I was excited to rip this thing open. And I ripped it open, and I found that the first lesson 
was just a bunch of things that teenagers weren't allowed to do. Just like a list. And I was like, what? And even a few of them on the list, I didn't even know what they were. I took, I took the list to, my, to the senior pastor, and I said, what is mixed bathing? <laughs> I didn't know what that was. And he said, it's when boys and girls swim together in the same swimming pool. And I was like, that's a sin? When would that become a sin? I was so confused. So I threw it away. I threw away the curriculum, and I taught on the stupidity of legalism <laughs> that Sunday. I think we're tempted to turn passages like this into a list of do's and don'ts, rules to follow, because, not because we love strict discipline. I don't think anybody loves strict discipline. I think we're tempted to turn them into rules because rules are a lot easier to follow and they give us a lot more control. I think we like to be able to check boxes. And we like to say, I've done my part, God. Now it's your turn to keep your end of the bargain. Right? We like to say, well, if I don't do these things, you're going to bless me, right? You're going to protect me, right? But that's not how it works, is it? I've known a lot of people in my life who have shipwrecked their faith because of that way of thinking. They were the good kids. They were the kids who didn't do any of the really bad sins. But then when life didn't work out the way that they expected it to, they said this whole Christian faith thing is garbage. I did my end of the bargain. God didn't keep his end of the bargain. So they gave up. That's one pitfall. But there's also another equally egregious temptation. And that is to immediately feel so overwhelmed by this sort of passage that we just think, we just tune it out. We don't even listen to it. All we hear is Charlie Brown's teacher. Right? We don't hear anything. We say, why even try? I'm just going to fail. So then along comes a preacher who says, oh, you don't have to live a holy life. Just accept God's grace. That's all you have to do. It's all good. And you go, oh, oh, thank God. Holiness seems so impossible anyways. And we, and we feel great. Oh, I just accept God's grace. In times like that, I think it's important that we listen to one of the, one of the voices that I, that I think is really important right now. And that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who was martyred by the Nazi regime because he would not support Hitler. And he famously wrote about what's called cheap grace. Here's what he said. Cheap grace is the enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is preaching the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Without the cross. Without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. There's a way that our American culture, Western culture, can be hostile to the idea that there should be any constraints on our freedom whatsoever. We're Americans. We, we want to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Did you know that Jesus never taught that? <laughs> Jesus never taught life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus taught discipleship. The apostles taught discipleship. Jesus talked about taking his yoke 
upon ourselves, following his way, becoming his apprentice, even possibly surrendering our lives if necessary. That's what Jesus taught. So we've got a lot of Christians today that run around assuaging everyone's fears, saying grace, 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 everything is grace. And they call discipleship legalism. But I've got bad news for those folks too. If Jesus is not your Lord, Jesus is not your Savior either. So it's neither healthy nor faithful to convert this passage to a list of rules, nor to give up and just say grace, grace, grace. The healthy and faithful way to understand and to apply this passage centers around verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 frame the entire passage. We have to get this. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Paul begins this passage with imitate God. Memetes theos. You can see why memetes is where we get the English word mimic. To imitate, to model one's life after someone else, to emulate a mentor or a guide. And the subject whom Paul directs us to model our lives after is theos, God. That seems immediately ridiculous. How could a human being model their lives after God? I'm not God. That we get defensive when we hear this. Imitate God. I'm not God. How can a human being model their lives after the God of the universe? We are limited and frail. God is unlimited and invincible. These are good questions. I think Paul means us to ask these questions. I think he intentionally started this passage with this directive to get us to ask this question. How do we do it? Now, I think it's important that we understand what comes after that, though. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are God's beloved child. We are God's beloved children. I'm going to camp out on this point for just a second. Is it all right if I preach a little bit? I teach a lot. Is it all right if I preach a little bit? Okay, I'm going to preach a little bit. There are millions, literally millions of Christians around the world who start with a negative view of human nature. That's their starting place. We start with a belittled, denigrated view of human nature. When you hear a directive like, imitate God, millions of Christians say, that's impossible because I'm only human. I'm only human. And people hear in that only human, they hear fundamentally sinful. I am fundamentally sinful. This negative view of human nature is so prevalent that it even shows up in the translation decisions of translators. Did you know that? People who translate the Bible, some of them have a negative view of human nature. So Paul uses this word in a lot of his letters. The word sarks. 
And sarx means flesh. But in some translations, you will see sinful nature as the translation of sarx. That's not what sarx means. Sarx means flesh. But if you have an inherent view that humanity is fundamentally sinful, flesh equals sinful nature. That's not true. I have a question for you. If that's where some people start, where does God start? When God thinks of human nature, where does God start? Well, where does God start on page one of the Bible? Page one of the Bible, God creates the sun, moon, and stars, land, sea, and sky, right? And then it says, God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, livestock, everything that crawls on the ground. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. And then God gave humanity a blessing. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, birds of the sky. Everything crawls on the ground. Then God said, now I give to you the plants of the earth. These will be your food to all the wildlife. Everything that breathes, I give you all green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he made and it was supremely good. So on page one of the Bible, human nature is blessed, supremely good, and the image of God. Nowhere on page one of the Bible do we see human nature as fundamentally sinful. The story of the Bible tells us that we were created to reflect God's loving reign into the creation and to gather up the praises of creation and give them to God. We are fundamentally children of God that bear the image of God. But if you start the Bible on page three, instead of page one, you might come away with a different story, right? The, the whole story changes. We are broken from the beginning if you start on page three. So when we hear the directive from the Apostle Paul to imitate God, we'll say, that's impossible. I'm fundamentally broken. I'm fundamentally sinful. But I want you to hear this. Hear this well. At bottom, you are not fundamentally broken. At bottom, you are fundamentally a child of God. You are fundamentally the image of God. That's who you are at bottom. That's who you fundamentally are. Sin is an invader to your nature. Sin is an alien to your nature. Sin is an alien to God's good creation. Sin is a disruption of God's good shalom. At bottom, you are beloved, blessed, and you are called. That's who you are at bottom. It's neither healthy nor faithful for us to throw our hands up in the air and say, I can't do it, Paul. I'm just human. I'm only human. And the reason why is because God has made a way for you to do it. Hasn't he? God has made a way. God himself has made it possible, not impossible, for us to imitate God. There was a time, yes, when we were lost in darkness. The passage says we stumbled around in darkness. 
like it was midnight and there was no street lights. But it says, we have now seen a great light. We have now had the light of Christ shine upon us and now everything has changed because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I want to introduce you to one of my favorite theologians, Athanasius of Alexandria, one of the great theologians of the church. He is from Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which is in Africa. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the great theologians of the church are all European. That's a lie. Athanasius was from Africa. Never forget that. Athanasius lived from the end of the third century into the fourth century. His theology was deeply rooted in the apostolic witness. And his theology was, was fundamental to the construction of what we call Christology. Well, how we understand Jesus' nature, human and divine. Athanasius was there, writing that stuff. And here's what he said. Here's what he said about human nature. He said, the word was made human in order that we might be made divine. He revealed himself through a body that we might receive knowledge of the invisible father. He endured insult at the hands of humans that we might inherit immortality. Now some have, some have um, condensed this down into a, a, a more memorable saying. He became what we are that we might become what he is. That's easier to remember. But that's Athanasius' starting place. That's where he starts when he thinks about human nature. And when you hear something like this, you might say, well, where's that in the Bible? Athanasius might have said that. Well, where's that in the Bible? Well, I would point to 2 Peter. 2 Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great precious and precious promises so that through them we might participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The mission of God has always been, and will always be until the eschaton, to restore humanity to our original connectedness to God, as it was always meant to be. We were always meant to dwell with God in uninterrupted fellowship. Sin is a disruption of that fellowship. God's dream of, of shalom. But the image of God in humanity, while it may have been effaced by sin, has never been erased by sin. That's right. It's a good one. We are still God's children. We are still bearing the image of God. Paul's directive for us to imitate God is made possible because Jesus became human. Because Jesus lived a human life and showed us how to live empowered by God's Spirit. Verse 2 says, Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. The key to a healthy and faithful understanding and application of this passage the key that avoids both legalism and cheap grace is this. Jesus' cruciform love. Jesus' cross-shaped love that is self-giving 
others-oriented and ego-denying. That's what cross-shaped love is. It's self-giving, others-oriented, ego-denying. If you and I are modeling our lives after the life of Jesus, as he's revealed in the Gospels and he's revealed in the apostolic witness, we don't have to worry about checking boxes. We don't have to worry about that list of do's and don'ts that's in the back of our head. All we have to worry about is following the way of Jesus. Holiness is not about morality maintenance. Holiness is about being a conduit of God's love. Not about morality maintenance, but being a conduit of God's love. Holiness, in fact, that focuses on sin is self-defeating. It's self-centered. Only a holiness that focuses on the love of God for us and the love of God that we are called to reflect is fruitful. Only that kind of holiness is fruitful. I had to learn this the hard way. When I was a first year Bible college student, I was suddenly thrust into an environment that was very different from my home church. My home church was beautiful, loving, taught me how to follow Jesus, taught me how to demonstrate the love of God. But suddenly, I was in a school where all the professors and all the students felt like they were on defense. Felt like they were always talking about avoiding sin, avoiding sinful places, avoiding sinful people. And it was burdensome. I had a professor who said, if I can go a day without sinning, I know I can go two days without sinning. If I can go two days without sinning, I know I can go a week, a month, a year. And I thought to myself, who wants to live like that? That feels like prison. I'm just constantly checking with my list. Did I, did I, did I break a rule? My school was, the culture of the school was fixated on sin. Fixated on avoiding breaking the rules. But I also found no reprieve on the other end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, I've known so many people, and myself included, who've had the exact opposite problem. We've resigned ourselves that we're just sinners. Nothing can be done about it, we're just sinners. So we say grace, 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 and we act like it's a magic wand that waves our sins away. But instead, we continue to remain trapped, caught up in patterns of sin, caught up in addiction, caught up in just stuck, never growing, never maturing. We're perpetual infants in Christ, just wallowing in God's grace. These two ends of the spectrum, they have something in common. They're self-centered. They're self-centered. Either you're so obsessed with sin avoidance that you're constantly checking in, did I break a rule, did I break a rule? Or you're so obsessed with, your, with yourself, I'm just a sinner, I'm just lost. I had a pastor that said, self-pity is just pride in disguise. Wallowing in self-pity is just as self-centered as the legalist. It's all self-centered. What this passage calls us to is neither legalism nor cheap grace. It calls us to embody the love of God in our lives. It calls us to be conduits of that love, to live as Jesus lived and love as Jesus loved. 
I want to tell you something. There have been times in my life, seasons, moments, days, weeks, there have been times when I have felt so caught up in God's love, so just connected with God at a, at a fundamental way, a deep way, that my pet sins, they felt a mile away. I didn't even think about them because I was so concerned with being a conduit of God's love. I was so concerned with thinking about others' needs before my own. I was so concerned with serving and giving, even to the point of sacrifice. That is how we are called to live. The times when my heart was broken for what, God, what breaks God's heart, I wasn't thinking about my own sins. I was thinking about the brokenness of this world that needs God's love, that needs us to reflect God's love into that world, to be those conduits, to be those ambassadors. At those times, I didn't worry about sin. That wasn't on my radar. I was only worried about what God, God was calling me to do. So this is what I want to say. This is how I'll, I'll wrap it up. You and I have an opportunity to live our lives as these conduits. We have an opportunity to surrender every aspect of ourselves to God and say, God, use me in my workplace. Use me in my classroom. Use me in this gathering here, in this fellowship of believers, to serve and to love as Jesus loved. And when we have that opportunity, we must not take it for granted. We must not dismiss it. We must not say, I'm not good enough. I'm just a sinner. I'm just human. And we must also not fall into the trap of creating a list of do's and don'ts. Both of those are destructive. And I'll close with this story. This, this week, um, you all know about the, uh, the shooting that happened in Pittsburgh at the, at the Tree of Life synagogue. Well, this week, I read an article about another synagogue where the membership was very concerned, rightfully so, about their own security. And that, that, that synagogue shared their space with a Mennonite church. The Mennonite church gathered on Sundays, the synagogue gathered on Friday nights and Saturday. And the Mennonites came to the, to the synagogue leader, to the president, and said, how can we serve? How can we love? We want to be there for you. We want to protect you. And the synagogue leader was so moved, the, the Mennonite church gathered on Friday night and Saturday morning and stood guard and sang hymns out front of the synagogue. And that, that synagogue president, the rabbi, said, I will take 20 Mennonites over one armed guard any day. And I thought to myself, that is the love of Jesus. That is how we demonstrate our love. And that love is more powerful than any hate or any fear. That is the kind of love that I think we are called to embody. Is to put our lives, put our bodies in the way. Pray with me. Father, I know as well as anyone else that when I hear a passage like this, it makes me very uncomfortable. It gets a little bit too personal. And I feel like one of two reactions are rising up within me. Either I want to create a list and check those boxes and make sure I'm living a holy life 
by following the rules. Or I just want to throw my hands up. I just want to say I can't do it. I'm, I'm utterly sinful. But Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus. I thank you that you sent Jesus to embody your love in a human life. To show us that we can live a holy life as conduits of your love. Form us, Lord Jesus. Form us in your way. Form us in your spirit to live and to love as you live and love. To be a community of peace. To be a community of love. I pray that you would give us imagination and creativity by your spirit. To see all of the ways in which we can embody that love in our lives. In the classroom, in the workplace, right here at Roots Covenant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.